Hello, Global Citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. I'm your host, Florence Adu, and I am on my last day of being six months or more in New York, and I'm so excited to be getting on a plane this evening. And I was so lucky to catch up with a friend who's halfway across the world right now. It's going into the evening there, and we're just bright and early in the morning here. But I'm really excited for this conversation. It's been long overdue to happen. So my guest this week is Jonas Ingman Parby. He is a senior urban specialist at the World Bank. He leads the urban program currently at the World Bank in Nepal, where he's based, and he's based in Kathmandu. He's worked in Latin America, the Caribbean region, Ghana, Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, Tanzania, and Mauritania. So he is a world traveler, global citizen, if there is ever one. I won't tell you where he's from. I'll let him talk a little bit more about that. But uh, Jonas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Yes, yes, yes. So tell us more about where you're from, where you're local, and what is your craft? So, uh, yeah, thanks a lot once again for having me. Yeah, so I'm originally from Denmark. I grew up in a small village uh, about 30 miles from Copenhagen. And uh, in my childhood there, very happy and playful childhood. So was, uh, it shaped me a lot, I think, in many ways. And... Uh, yeah, right now uh, I'm basically working as an urban specialist, as you mentioned. Worked in development in the last, well, I would say 15, 15 years, I guess it is now. And uh, I think pretty early on realized that this would be one of my most important passions in life and that I wanted to uh, dedicate and in, invest my life in trying to work on improving the lives of others, so to speak, if, it, if you can say such a lofty thing. So that has been sort of where my passion and my engagement has been for the last many years. Um, yeah, and I think a lot of where I came was probably also shaped by both, you know, different influences, both from my parents and from friends and from different events in my uh, youth that also, I think, inspired me to move in this direction. So, yeah, so it's now, I think I'm clocking 12 years at the World Bank. So I'm also quite a veteran in that, uh, but I'm still... Yeah. Finding every day new, new, I think, uh, inspiration, new ideas and new insights, you know, through this very unique, I think, place uh, and very privileged place, I think, also that we sit in. So it has been great. And uh, I hope to continue long, long further on. Uh huh. So tell us a little bit more about where you grew up in Denmark. And you, you mentioned, you know, you think that shaped a lot of how you were able to and move into the spaces you are. Tell us a little bit more about I mean, I've never been to Denmark. I've have a few Danish friends, and the pictures I see are always so beautiful. So, tell us more about that. So, yeah, so I grew up in the village. It was really a village of about, I think, a thousand people. Now it's oh, like, okay. Hagen, and my parents moved from Copenhagen when my brother was very young, and uh, I was born and, and raised in that village. And I had, uh, I think, uh, it was obviously a very uh, 
quiet and stable environment. But at the same time, I think I was and very inspiring in the sense that I had a lot of freedom. I could always roam around. I could always take my bike, go everywhere I wanted and do without any fear of dangers and so on. So it nurtured definitely something probably that I already had that was always engaging in going, you know, exploring and going to the next and seeing new things, even if it was within that small village. And then as I grew older, I think from my parents, especially sort of the global outlook and interest in global events and things that were happening, the end of apartheid, Palestine conflict, I think sort of big global issues, even though we were in that small environment, was came up and the discussions and, you know, obviously it made us very much aware that we were just part of a much bigger world out there. And then I think when I was about 20, one of my best friends uh, got married in Peru. He, he left Denmark and spent a several, couple of years in Peru as a young high school student. And he eventually got married. And one summer after the wedding, I spent three months working as a, as a volunteer with three children in Peru in the, in the Andes region, in the mountains. And basically was throwing in front of them with some minimal, actually no Spanish at all, just a bit of French. And then just catching up day by day and communicating and engaging with them and, and making activities that would help them sort of uh, get away from whatever difficult backgrounds they were from. And uh, so that was a very inspiring kind of period for me. And when I came back, I think I felt that that was something that I would like to see and do more of different ways. Mm -hmm. So that was a very, very special, uh, I think, time and a very inspirational visit for me to Peru. First time, I think it was actually outside of Europe in, the, in those days. So Okay. So, yeah. Wow. So <laughs> you mentioned you had some French and you were navigating with these children speaking Spanish. So they basically taught you Spanish. Yeah, I had a little yellow dictionary that I looked in yeah. every, every day, English, Spanish. And then I, I, every time there was a word, if I didn't know it, I would try to throw in some French and see if that worked. And otherwise, I would, yeah. I would have to go to the dictionary. So, yeah. I mean, just with basic communication, a lot of, I mean, they were ages from three to 10. It was kind of oh, combined okay. and did a lot of work on arts and stuff that, was, that could be nonverbal. So, Okay. It was not teaching as such, it was more like activities. And so sure. playing soccer, playing sports. Yeah, it was great. And soon after, I mean, actually then, of course, uh, I came back and I studied more Spanish and I became much more comfortable in it. And it nurtured also already at that point, I had a great love and affection for languages. And so yeah. uh, in high school, I had taken, of course, French and, and I had uh, taken others. So, yeah, so that, that continued also as, as part of this uh, global, I think, uh, passion or international outlook in some ways. So, yeah. That's so funny because the first time I went to Mexico, I went to Puerto Vallarta and I speak French as well. And so I was doing the same thing. I basically was like, oh, they would say something and I would think in French and try to, yeah, try to test it and see what happened. And so, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So speaking of languages, yeah. how many how many do you speak now? Well, I still, I must admit, I think I've stayed with more the, the European languages. So I have not been able to pick up, for instance, here in Nepal, where we've lived now for about a year, I haven't been able to pick, pick up much, very much as much as I would have wanted to. But yeah, I speak probably like, yeah, I would say five, no? I mean, so Danish and German, English, Spanish and French. So those okay. I can definitely have full conversations and sure. uh, get by and understand newspapers okay. and so on. So, but after that, uh, yeah, I did have another uh, where a period in the, when I was very young, I think 21, 22, and I, and I tried to even take on Chinese while I was uh, studying full time uh, as if I could, you know, I was seeing myself maybe slightly. 
superhuman. And true enough, after a few few months, very intense, trying to learn this extremely complicated and complex language, I decided to to give it up. But uh, but yeah, I'm sure there'll be I'm sure there'll be more options. And Nepal is actually, I mean, Nepal is obviously easier both grammar wise, but also just because we live here, so it's going to be hopefully something we can have at least a, a basic vocabulary. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay, so let me get to my why the where question because you've mentioned where you are and being there for a, a little bit of time. So how did you come to be living, working, and playing where you're living now? Yeah, so now uh, I arrived in uh, here in Kathmandu, the capital of, of Nepal, uh, basically uh, almost one year ago, a little more than one year ago. And uh, yeah, it was uh, a big uh, dream uh, that uh, wanted to, I've been living almost what is it now, nine, ten years in Washington, D.C., and had come to a uh, sort of a sentiment of feeling that this was a time to to shift gear a bit and, and move and be back where, you know, things actually happen when you work in this space of international development. And so I had been eager to do that even for a while. And then we was lucky enough that life circumstances fell together very nicely, that on the one hand, I had my wife and I, we had a daughter, and on the other hand, we were both eager to take two chapters of both having a child as well as leaving the U.S. and going out. So we, we looked for different options and then this came up and we both felt very connected to the idea of Nepal. And though none of us had been here, we, we felt that this was um, something where we could both thrive and, you know, read about it. And, and then we, we were fortunate enough to get actually the position, or I was fortunate enough to get the position. And so, so yeah, so that's how I arrived. So now I live in, a, I'm sitting here, it's a Sunday night, as you mentioned, and uh, it's uh, dark outside. I'm sitting here in the guest room. My wife and daughter are almost about to sleep, but uh, we are now, have been hiking today and have been enjoying the scenery of this uh, city. And uh, yeah, it's, so this weekend is definitely for play. Next week is a very busy work week. So I managed to focus on this and have this time uh, sort of dedicated to the family and just enjoying the neighborhood. So. Okay. Uh, we live in a small neighborhood, which is quite rural in a way. So it's very green and we can see the mountains from the house. So it's something that, is, that inspires us in the sense of feeling really or a part and parcel of, of a new experience, uh, both with all the sounds and the smells and the sights. And the, the good, good and bad, of course, is not just all rosy uh, things, but sure. we feel very much at home and have been lucky to meet fantastic people here already. So that's it. Yeah. So had you been to Asia before you landed in Nepal? Yes. I'd never explored South Asia that much. I'd been in Sri Lanka. Actually, I lived more than a year in Cambodia mm-hmm. about 15 years ago. And then um, I had been uh, also living in Thailand, actually, okay. <laughs> also about 17, 18 years ago. And then, so I knew Southeast Asia quite well, but the South Asia region, I'd never uh, this whole subcontinent I've never really had a chance to visit. So yeah, so it's a big jump into the unknown. And But I had heard good things and I had consulted with friends and sure. also actually some Nepali colleagues that I know. And yeah, so it was uh, it was not completely unknown, but definitely it was, uh, it was a jump, but very, very happy to have done it. Okay. Okay. So speaking of all of your local experiences, this is where I ask my local speak question. So we want to hear what you hear. Especially since you're so new there, I'm thinking you might your ears might be sensitive to a lot of different new terms and you're absorbing a lot. So this is where I ask you to share a word, phrase, or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value this as local speak. 
Yeah, for sure. I think the one that comes to mind in, in Nepal is the uh, word uh, Namaste, which oh, is okay. a greeting. You say, yes. And you yes. hold your hands together in front of your face, which basically means I bow to you, I bow to you. Um, yes. So it's something that uh, in a way signifies well how the culture, I think, sort of evolves here. How I've, I've, my impression of it, of course, is not only the only part of it, but it's uh, incredibly respectful, polite, but at the same time very warm and uh, very sincere. And so that's something that I think a lot of the people at least I've met, it's made me feel even when you have communication barriers and people don't speak English and you don't speak Nepali, you you still uh, feel that uh, across you know vibrations being sent between people. So that's something that I think is a very important term, even to the extent that my daughter was now one little over one year, we've almost taught her to, not to say it because she can't do that yet, but to move her fingers, her oh, hands yes. together in a greeting. So that's very sweet. So now she she's already street smart in, uh, <laughs> in the hall. <laughs> yes, nice. A nice little polite little lady. <laughs> it's so <laughs> funny because, you know, I first came across Namaste I'm a yogi, so in yoga, and I think yoga culture has in some ways done a disservice because so much of it in the West is just this kind of workout and it's not the actual sentiment of this energetic. I love that you said the energy of the appreciation and the thoughtfulness of really seeing someone. Mm -hmm. So I think, I mean, I feel like I've personally looked at that myself, but I like that you've expressed that so that people really understand that it's not just a word. It really means greet, I thank you, I bow to you, and peace be with you, basically. Mm. So thank you for that. So let's get yeah. into what it means to be an urban specialist mm -hmm. at the World Bank, because that has been, so you tell us a little bit about your journey at the World Bank, because you're my first world banker. And mm -hmm. so I, I mean, as in being some consultants, but you're the first like proper world banker that I've had on the program. So, <laughs> so journey and how you moved from different places, how you became an urban spell specialist. Tell us more about that. So, no, so I, when I came to the World Bank in, uh, yeah, it was like 2009, almost just around the time of Obama's election, actually the first election. That was uh, basically, I came, I was fortunate to benefit from the Danish government's uh, a junior professional officer kind of program, which is a program in which Danish government supports Danish citizens to obtain jobs in different international organizations. And so I, through that program, I started working at the bank. And at that point, it was not particularly urban. It was a more, uh, actually, it was a, a unit that worked in East Africa, including Uganda, Tanzania, uh, Burundi. And then uh, because of my previous, I mean, my basically my background, technical uh, background from university, working with local authorities and more local development and also urban issues, then uh, I managed to shift uh, to another department basically within the bank after a year or so because I felt that that would be more suited to my interest and my, my background. And since then, uh, I just then gradually expanded my experience and worked on a lot of countries and took different additional sort of specialized, let's say, trainings in areas where I felt I was maybe not so strong and, and build on, on all of that. I very much enjoy, I think, the, the kind of the space, which is between, I mean, it's complex because you work in a space between national government, local governments and citizens, and you try to find the sweet spot where everything sort of connects and where decisions uh, at 
different levels and reality, I mean, and, and actually implementation obviously becomes real. So it's, it's not, I mean, I think all sectors have their own complexities, but of course, urban specifically can be also politically very complex because you have mayors of certain parties that are representing and pursuing certain goals, and then you have other visions from national level leaders, and sometimes they don't play well together. So I think mm-hmm. we know that from many countries, even uh, the US, and also, of course, some some of my experience in Denmark. So that's something you need to navigate. So it can be incredibly challenging, but at the same time, it's very inspiring because you can have strong and passionate local leaders that, that know what they want and that are very articulate and very clear on their vision, and you can help support them, you know, realize such visions. Then you have achieved a lot, and that, that can be, uh, I think, sometimes very inspiring, even compared with working with national-level uh, leaders. So that's been one of the drivers. And then, of course, when you work with, um, with citizens also, you're closer to communities, you're closer to citizens, because uh, the things, the activities, the kind of projects you do are much, uh, let's say, more re- uh, concrete in many ways. I mean, you build a road from X to C, and, or you build a school from through a project, or you build a, a health center. So it's quite much more quick and concrete, even if in scale it's not necessarily going to change the whole city, but it can have a very, very powerful micro-impact. So that's another, I think, inspiration. Mm-hmm. And then I think the last is obviously that you have sectors that are so... I mean, you can do many things in a city. You can do anything. You can talk about how you create jobs or how you get kids to access school or it can be anything, right? So it's, it's also very complex. But within that, there's also an incredible amount of uh, opportunity to pick your fights and then to try to, to make changes to, to that particular city, of course, over time. Sure. So let me let me ask you to be a little bit more specific. So give us a situation of, first of all, how you become engaged, right? So everyone knows the World Bank is the World Bank. They do, you know, mm-hmm. this quote-unquote development work or what have you. But what are the mechanics of you coming into, say, for, I met you in Ghana. So you've told me a little bit about your project in Ghana and working in these urban settings. So tell us more about how you facilitated getting in and the local leadership that you worked with and, and the kind of impact that you were able to see? Yeah, so I think the way through the first question, the way we get in is basically through, of course, that I mean, uh, a government decides that they want to seek additional support from outside, from their own resources. And so then they would seek partnership with different stakeholders, including the World Bank. And then we would come in and we would then start a technical dialogue, of course, with the ministries or with the mayors and figure out, okay, what, is the pro- what are the problems that they see? What are the key issues that they want to resolve? And how can we help them in any way in terms of either, it can be, of course, a, lend- a lending, I mean, a, what we call an investment policy, or it can be some kind of policy analysis or technical report, which is also a very big part of what the World Bank is doing. And then after that, you basically have these conversations and discussions and consultations to figure out, okay, what is it that they want to do? And you start identifying a concrete issue, a concrete problem, either it's geography-based, that a certain part of the city is completely flooded every year, or that, you know, that there's a complete lack of jobs in certain part, or there's a slum area which in dire need of upgrading or something similar, right? That would be very concrete. And then at the same time, of course, beyond just infrastructure, we also, the, one of the key issues, I think, is always to try to build and strengthen institutions. So how you, you make, how you support making institutions more efficient, where BHP in providing information to the citizens, uh, in collecting taxes, in uh, 
sharing the plans with citizens of, okay, what are the next changes that would happen? Or it can be basically anything over and above, uh, you know, that, that of course, transparency as well is very important that resources are managed and and effectively and that they are accounted for and so on so that you have reduction of, of flaws. So those are the kind of the key parameters. And then finally, I think on the examples, I think, I mean, there are many different that I think have been powerful to me. I think the one that... Uh, that comes to mind is, I think, uh, also an upgrading project we did in Kigali, actually, where we did uh, an urban upgrading project that basically to help resolve some major deficiencies, both in terms of access to service for, for people living there, in terms of health challenges and other things that where the, pro- the program helps uh, support and resolve or uh, contribute to resolving those issues. But that is one. And uh, I think others would be in, in Accra where... Over several months, I mean, several years, so to speak, we, we managed to start a dialogue around how Accra can resolve its problems with flooding, which has been one of the recurrent issues over there, and how, how the city can start building, basically, uh, look uh, to the future over and above four years of the usual policy cycle, but actually try to resolve the problem over time. So that's another one where, I mean, concretely, we, now there's an ongoing resolution for solid waste problems and trying to fix some of the key issues that cause this flooding every year. So visually, those are, I mean, those are some of the examples, but I think it's also should be said that I think one key lesson is obviously that you need uh, sometimes enormous amount of patience because mm-hmm. both our institution is not always the most fast uh, and we are not yeah. always more agile to adapt to the reality on the ground. And then secondly, we are also facing we're working with political leaders, politically elected leaders with their own uh, priorities and own, uh, let's say, sometimes uh, different ways. So that can also cause uh, huge uh, delays in terms of getting things done. So it really depends a lot on, on some of these parameters. And that's why uh, you need sometimes an enormous amount of patience. <laughs> and it can be frustrating. I mean, it can be frustrating. That should not be underestimated. You're not always in control because you try to work with so many stakeholders. So it's not as just running your own company, right? So yeah, so yeah, that's I guess my reflection. <laughs> I think policy, all levels, is this constant exercise in patience, right? Mm-hmm. So from moving, in my own experience working in policy, you know, I think some people in the private sector often look at those who've worked in policy and they say, "Wow, you you just so chill about everything." It's like, well, I'm used to this. So it's really good training for how to understand. And it's not just in this development space. I mean, I think looking at how quickly things move in the West versus the way things move in the developing world, everything takes a lot of time. And it often is dependent upon funding, but it's also, you know, culture, style, all of those things that you mentioned that are part of, you know, how and, and what kind of stands in the way of, of getting things done. So tell us more about what your project is like in Nepal and what you've experienced there. Yes. So no, I would say the last point on, on the other aspect is also something actually from here in Nepal, which is that I think one thing that balances out sometimes the patience and the tediousness of which can occur in certain in certain countries is also individuals and leadership. And so you find the sweet spot of working with someone by one way or the other coming across someone who really wants to drive an agenda and has the the cloud to do that. And then you can you can also achieve amazing things in partnership, in collaboration. 
And so that's uh, something I've experienced, I think, in many places. And it can really be the, the, the difference between succeeding or, or failing, right? So here in, here in Nepal, it's been one thing, uh, uh, one project which I think I came at the tail end, but it's, it's a very interesting one, is, is around uh, protecting cultural heritage in uh, part of Kathmandu and promoting jobs, let's say, uh, and preserving skills, because Nepal has a very rich tradition of skills in, in let's say, in traditional artisanry and uh, yeah. uh, arts. And so, but those skills are not automatically passed on from generation to generation. Right. And in a context of Nepal, where almost 25% of the GDP derives from migrant workers sending money uh, back, mm-hmm. you can imagine that for a young person here, it's always going to be a big consideration to to try to opt for one of the rather risky, but still it is an opportunity to move abroad to try to get some sort of income. And so in that context, preserving those skills and making making jobs that can be stay within Nepal are very important. And this mayor, particularly in this particular municipality, I think was one of the examples that I was very impressed about and someone who remains, I think, very inspirational for his for his uh, citizens in the way that he promotes and acts and delivers on what he promises. So recently there was actually in this city, which is actually unfortunately one of the more polluted ones in the world, um, there was an opening of a bike lanes, the first dedicated organized bike lanes, let's say, in the city. And so so this was a symbolically very important event, but also it's hopefully something for the future that will be expanded further. And I think the mayor was was definitely, let's say, the driver behind those changes. So that's that's been just my local, I mean, that's a project that ended, but it was a very, very, very inspirational project. But other than that, our focus here is to try to support the growth and uh, functioning of secondary cities because Nepal has a huge concentration. The population of Kathmandu is growing by 5 to 6% per year. So that is a massive amount of people. That is, people that is migration Okay. Yeah. Right. From rural so, settings, right? So there's less exactly. less jobs in rural. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's not natural growth. It's not because people are having huge amount of children here in Nepal. They don't actually. I mean, if you look comparatively to other countries, but it makes basically migration. And so in that setting, you want to one of course support the city of Kathmandu to better absorb and manage this growth, and the other one is to try to make the other secondary cities viable centers for for jobs and for education and for health. And so that is what this project is trying to do. We're just at the beginning. We're actually launching the project in three days. So you speak to oh, us wow. at a very good time. <laughs> yeah. We're having the press release and, and everything going out and very excited. So that's the next four years, basically. For oh, that wow. Project. So, okay. so that's a very big 17 cities plus. We also have, of course, related to COVID, we have uh, an additional uh, set of activities related to, uh, let's say, COVID recovery because... The economy here has also been impacted by by COVID nineteen. We had a six months lock, a five months uh, almost full lockdown in a country where a lot of people are informal workers and they don't, you know, they, they can't work at home and their computers. They cannot sell their produce in the street because sure. police will mm-hmm. tell them to go home. So it's been a, a very hard period for a lot of people here. But yeah. uh, now it's turning back to normal, let's say, at least okay. in terms of the street life. So that's the project. So we hope. And then we have other activities here, but that's the main activity that I have basically. Sure, that's coming up. Sure. So what is your expectation for that project? So you're working on secondary cities. So is it to come up with a master plan? Is it to really see jobs Mm -hmm. developed? Like what exactly is the outcome after your four-year endeavor? So the the main outcome is 
I think there's one thing is important in Nepal is that uh, 2015, after I think one should understand, is quite important for the whole future of the country. But in 2015, after more than, I would say, 25, 30 years of sort of on-off conflict between different groups in society because of extreme unequal distribution of resources, so it ended, ended in uh, around 2008-9, and then there was a protracted period of trying to figure out what is the future of the country in terms of the constitution, because at that point, Nepal decided to abolish monarchy and shift mm-hmm. towards a republic system. And so in 2015, a very uh, federalist constitution was passed, which gives power, a lot of power to provinces and municipalities and districts compared to before, where you had a very centralized monarchy. So what we are trying to do is to support that endeavor to strengthen, let's say, also these institutions that are outside of the city, outside of the... Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're, they're, they're basically uh, in their infancy, right? These institutions are infancy, very young. Yeah. 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 That is a big part of the project. The other part is to provide infrastructure because, uh, I mean, to finance infrastructure. So that is basically a lot of roads, drainages, some sanitation and some markets. So it's pretty basic stuff, but it's things that... Based on, I mean, the things that have been, the, both the cities that have been selected as well as the roads are seen to be the ones that, you know, can make a difference in terms of access to markets, uh, produce, uh, being sold in, in, in central areas. Uh, of course, it's the cost of transport and, and other things. So it's, it also, those are the key objectives. But basically, that's the overall scope. And then finally, we have this COVID, uh, which is going to be where we will provide cash for work. Basically, the project will finance cash for work. So you will have basically youth, women, I mean, young men and women, plus uh, vulnerable groups that will be given cash for work for small maintenance tasks and other things. And mm-hmm. that will be able to support because of this economic downturn and, and, and social uh, stability, I mean, social say, crisis that have erupted after COVID. So sure. that is going to be the most urgent priority in the next 12 to 18 months. So, yeah, so those are the, so we see this project as, that's very key in terms of um, helping, let's say, build institutions that are much more viable. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, when you compare, for instance, with Ghana or something, where you had this system for much longer, the institutions, even if they're not 100% functioning, they are much more viable than here, where you have coming from this centralized monarchy to a much more democratic federalist system. That is a fascinating process, but it's also, again, one of the most challenging endeavors you can sure. do so full of politics and full of different interests. Yeah, exactly. Special interests. So where do you see this being sustained? Because this is a new federalist program. How's the tax system? Like, where does sustainability show its face in this work? Well, sustainability in terms of the results, I think, is basically, yeah, yeah it will be institutions that are able to maintain and, and manage the investments, let's say the infrastructure investments, and that are mm-hmm. uh, the local governments that are able to, yeah, to collect taxes and to be obviously efficient in delivering future services and then help them in planning also the future for their city. That, that's in terms of the, the results. But then on the other hand, of course, we also have a lot of attention around climate uh, mm-hmm. and impacts of climate change because Nepal is one of the, among the top five countries that has the highest, let's say, that sees the highest impact of, of climate change in terms of changes in rainfall, in terms of mm-hmm. uh, land degradation and in terms of other things. And that means that Given the the way that the country is structured with huge mountains and yeah. and also plains and so on, you have um, you have a high risk environment. So all the the investments that the the bank finances are basically required to be integrating this from the design and in the 
in the way they're delivered. So that's something we take extremely seriously in the way that this work is done. And that will continue to be a challenge going forward. But if we can help sustain that roads that we construct and the systems that we finance become part and parcel of such a sustainability agenda, then that, that's a big uh, result for us. Yeah, yeah. Interesting you bring up climate change and sustainability because that is a huge issue now. In your mind, thinking just more globally, what do you think are, particularly in the developing world, because you've worked in so many different urban and peri-urban environments and the flooding is a climate change issue, right? So you've, you've confronted this in many of your projects. What do you think is the major thing, the one thing or one or two things that developing countries can and should do to address climate change on a very micro level? So I think the first most important is probably around emissions, no? So that's basically the fleet of transport that you have in a city. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, that's unfortunately here in Nepal and uh, in Kathmandu, very uh, a current issue because we had mm-hmm. uh, three weeks ago, we had about 600 in, uh, in what they call, I think, the PM2 scale, which is uh, basically a scale that measures air pollution. And that mm-hmm. is basically five times above what is unhealthy. So you had, that was one day, it was only one day, but it was downtown, it was not where I live, fortunately, but it was very, very bad. So that is just to say that the urgency is there, right? And there's not, there's no excuse. There's lots of cheap technology, cheap electrical vehicle transport system. Um, You can enforce legislation to phase out all your vehicles that are Mm in the public transport system that uh, is used by all time. So that is, I think, number one in terms of urban Mm. More, more like trying to manage it's not even it's more pollution issue maybe than the climate as such but it's uh, definitely one and yeah. then I think the other one is, is around maybe I would say trying to build uh, let's say the, the future to last so not only when you build infrastructure and you build grey but also that you you have sufficient green spaces within your city mm-hmm. that allows mm-hmm. you to uh, to for instance manage where when floods are coming and when rivers are coming that you mm-hmm. prepare for that, uh, mm-hmm. because so those are all adaptation, let's say, uh, aspects, because you have to adapt to whatever is coming from outside, right? So I think those are some of the things. And then, of course, for Nepal, I mean, the, the bigger challenge is, is the, the melting of the glaciers, which mm-hmm. right? Which is gradually releasing more and more ice. And so in that one, there's, it's much more the global level, of course, you can try to slow the train. Uh, but then also locally, of course, you have to think about where are people living in risky areas? Are they living right. Are they constructing, you know, and how do we manage that so we, our population is not losing lives or losing health because of living in wrong areas? So I think those are some other things you can do at, from my perspective. But of course, beyond that, there's lots of stuff around taxes and, you know, trying to shift that people don't consume so much petrol and all of that. But yeah, that's a yeah. more macro level things. Right. Those are great. Those are great. I love those. So what I will do, listeners, is I will, I think there's probably plenty of literature to, and I'll ask Jonas for some as well, that kind of speaks to some of these things to add to the show notes, because we all have a duty, folks. The climate is ours and we got to take care of it. So let's move into a mindset hack, which I think goes nicely with what we've just spoken about. So this is where I ask, what is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack. Now, this is one that you can imagine or one that you know of. So, yeah, I think what makes me, what stimulates, I think, my thought process is probably around being in nature and mm-hmm. moving, let's say, being uh, active. So running is mm-hmm. something that uh, always uh, coming back to me more, more than just exercise. It's also just having, being in a flow. 
and sure. being in a different kind of, uh, I mean, sort of leaving behind all the other things that may be in your daily life and just being yeah. focused on your breathing and your surroundings and just uh, trying to be in your senses, so to speak. Yeah, I love and, that. Uh, so that, that's something I think that always comes back to inspire. And here I've also been lucky enough to find routes and areas that constantly yeah, uh, can give me new perspective, even if I'm stuck with some problem or otherwise uh, fight, uh, grappling with something that is uh, tricky then. Yeah. can give new energy, even if it doesn't give solutions. So, so that's right. yeah. great for me. And then on top of that, I think it's in this COVID time, times where we work from home and have done so for so long, it's a very important part because otherwise you end up sitting quite long in, in this confined and little bit stressed space where you just constantly go from call to call or write emails and so on. And then I think that is uh, important to switch that out with something else. So in here, in, in this area, it's been fantastic because also you can, it's like a little journey into a new culture. Every time you step out and you, mm. you lived here before, we are, you see kids in the street or you see a Brahmin coming down, he's going to give some blessing to one house and then you come past the local big temple we have down the street and then there's some other activity going on. There's a political demonstration or people are just shopping before going home. So it's a whole micro life that plays out for you. And, and so it's, yeah, it's good that you just get a sense, okay, beyond all these email and phones, you know, there's people are living their lives and dealing right. with their issues and kids are going to school and, you know, things are there. So it's, it's a good thing now that I cannot go to visit and see my counterparts and the mayors and citizens or anyone because of the restrictions of COVID, which I, is very frustrating, right? So yeah. that's, I think, the mind hack continues to be. And then hiking in the weekends and going is also, I think, one of my... Uh, and then music. But I don't play myself, but more so singing a bit and, of course, listening to different... Exploring different new music that is emerging sure. that I just can be inspirational. Okay. So... Basically stimulating your senses. I like that a lot. And so tell me, because I grew up at above altitude in Colorado, so a mile high, the Maha City. And how was your adjustment to running in Nepal? That's been, uh, was challenging in the beginning. For yeah. Sure. But yeah, now I, I felt it was, uh, before we left, we had a lot of hiatus in Europe uh, over the summer because of COVID. Uh-huh. Before we left, I had very good stamina at the end. It, it helped strengthen my stamina clearly because yeah. of, the altitude, of the changes and the altitude. And, right. and sort of just three, four hundred hike meters in one in one run, you go up and down and then exactly. you really feel it. So, so that's been great. So now I feel fully acclimatized. Okay, uh, wonderful. But it's still, yeah. you cannot compete with the mountain runners. We have, there are here in the region that are very, or in the country, Nepali and the express that are doing uh-huh. 60, 70 kilometer runs uh, around the ridges. And yeah, that's a whole other. Whole those, other those, that's an Ironman. That's mm-hmm. an Ironman. We'll leave yeah. those for the Ironman challenges. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Nice. Okay. So, wow. I really have loved this conversation. I like just learning so much more about another part of the world. So, you mentioned music, and I'll ask you this so you can give us a sense. We want to know more about who you are, and, and you've given us a, give us a sense of that, and less about what you do. So you mentioned music, but what are you reading? Or So are you a listener, are you a watcher, or are you a reader? Well, I'm a bit of both, I guess, but uh, okay. now, right now the time of all three. I'm not, currently actually, I'm not reading that much. I'm mostly reading work reports, I mean, yeah. outside of work stuff. 
and then uh, spending reading stories for my daughter, which is always a, a great joy. What's her favorite uh, story? Well, she has several, actually. I don't actually at the moment. I don't think there's such a favorite one. But one okay. thing that we enjoy, which combines music and, and storytelling, is a deck of cards that she has, which has all, like, probably, I don't know, like 50 Danish children's songs oh. in uh, those cards. And each card has an illustration. And so okay. at her age, there's a very uh, nice dynamic where she engages with the picture. Meanwhile, I sing the song. And so we kind of have a dialogue around that. So that's, that's a very nice hybrid of singing and reading kind of and talking and about language. And language. So do and you language, speak, yeah. so are you speaking, is she learning Danish as well as English, as well as, and I think your wife is also not American. So is she learning three languages? No, at the moment, only Danish and English. I've encouraged okay. my wife to speak Amharic to her, but uh, it's, uh, I guess, yeah, she's, she came uh, young to US. So I think it's, I mean, she can speak it, but it's, yeah, maybe later she will add it. Okay. We are planning this year, hopefully, to go to Ethiopia, actually, because then we will be able to, if time allows and COVID allows, sure, to, to do some connect immersion. With, uh, with the other part of the culture. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So the deck of cards. Okay. So you're doing mm-hmm. a the deck of that. cards and then um, <laughs> singing. I used to sing in choir, but here I haven't found a choir. But I love oh, okay. singing very much. So I, I think that's something that can uh, be also at the level of running actually can be very, very, very inspirational and have given me a lot of joy in the I've sung in maybe, I don't know, five, six choirs over the oh, last okay. many years. But um but something that, that is uh, yeah, is can because if you don't master an, an instrument then I think uh, singing can your be, voice is uh, instrument, quite, yes, exactly. Yeah, can be yeah. quite inspirational. So that's on the music side. And then no, I think sensing, I mean, uh, still a taste and everything that has to do with cooking and, and engaging on, on or visual okay. arts and so on is also something I find uh, very inspiring. So that's okay. kind of a bit all over, but <laughs> it just takes <laughs> together this moment. I think we've already recognized you're kind of a renaissance man. So being all <laughs> over the place is okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed our conversation. Do you have any last words? For now, no, just uh, stay safe and enjoy the the moment when hopefully within this year we start living in a slightly less confined world. Yeah, uh, so that becomes liberating for for all of us, and I think yeah. uh, that's needed. But uh, of course, there's a lot more people that are having a lot more difficult time than sitting in front of a computer working than you know, and still having all your livelihoods. So that's also mm-hmm. not too forget to be humble and think about, you know, how much worse it could be. So mm. I think that's in respect is have that humility is always healthy, I think. So you are grateful Absolutely. for whatever things have been given. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Those are great last words. And stay safe. Thank you, Thank Jonas. You. I really Thank appreciate you. it. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. So listeners, this has been another episode of the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. I'm your host, Florence Adu. You can catch us each and every Tuesday with a new episode on www.glocalcitizenspod.com and wherever you get your podcasts. So Apple, Amazon, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, Anywhere you get your podcast, just listen, learn, and subscribe. Send a comment. We love to hear from you. 
And I'll look forward to seeing you on the other side when I'm back in Ghana, still doing remote interviews, but nonetheless, still I'm bringing you great guests with insightful conversations. So until next time, bye for now. Bye.